Uh, today we have James Nobles, my, my good friend, and anybody who likes anything about what we do here at King Law should automatically like what James does. We've, we've taken so many of his ideas over the years, and for the people who don't know, and I don't know if even Bree knows this, one of the very first people I ever told I was leaving the government to go into private practice was James, and, and I met with him, and I have asked him hundreds, if not thousands <laughs> of questions over the course of the last... Uh, it slowed down. In the uh, early years, it was daily, uh, but, but now it's maybe once a month. Yeah, <laughs> correct. So, so James Noble is a criminal defense lawyer, uh, sometimes civil attorney, but a true professional lawyer and, and really a professional in all regards, in, in my opinion. And we're really happy to have him here and talk. I, I could just ask James questions forever because he's a brilliant attorney and a, and a good person. So uh, I think the biggest thing, if I could introduce James, is this is the guy who's won more murder trials than anybody I know. It's maybe Joe D'Amelio's won a bunch. He's done a bunch. But uh, tell us a little about yeah, your so, uh, practice. Yeah, so I, um, you know, these days there's a lot of white-collar defense, but there's still some, some you know, more traditional criminal defense work. I'm going to try my 25th murder trial uh, in February coming up. Um, of the 24 I've tried, I've won 14 of them. So that's a pretty good record. I don't know anybody else who has um, that percentage of wins. Um, and of course, you know, as you know, if you've tried 24 murder trials, you've literally tried hundreds, if not thousands of other types of cases, which have certainly done. Um, and over the years, it, it has sort of transitioned from, you know, assigned counsel cases, then into retained private cases, um, which give you, as you know, give you the resources to potentially, you know, do a better job, have investigators and experts and those sorts of things. And, and now, um, you know, my practice in terms of volume of number of clients is really pretty small. Um, I might have somewhere between 10 and 20 clients at a time, but almost all of those cases are boxes upon boxes upon boxes, right? So, so having um, been a graduate of business school before I went to law school, or had a degree in business before I went to law school, and coming from a family of entrepreneurs, I'm kind of drawn to the paper cases at this point, economic crimes, Ponzi schemes, tax evasions, all those sorts of things. A lot of lawyers want to shy away from that because it's complicated and intellectual and there's a lot of documentation to go through. Um, but I've sort of thrived on that. And so a lot, many of my cases now involve money laundering or tax evasion or uh, wire fraud, bank fraud, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, I, I did a case involving um, one coin, which was a, a purported cryptocurrency company, but was really the world's largest Ponzi scheme. And the founders um, stole $4 billion from thousands and thousands and thousands of investors all over the world. And I represented, <coughs> excuse me, I represented an attorney who was accused of laundering $450 million over the $4 billion. Um, I was one of three lawyers who worked on that case. Um, and that is still being litigated even now in terms of he was convicted of some counts of trial. Uh, it appears as though we may get a new trial because one of the government witnesses materially lied on the stand. Uh, and there was some Brady evidence. For those who don't know, Brady is, is the type of evidence where um, it actually would show your client didn't commit the crime. Uh, and so what the uh, co-conspirator, the other, the other uh, witness lied about was something that actually would prove our client's innocence or lack of knowledge in the scheme. So that's a case that, you know, is still going on now. So <clears throat> that's kind of a lot of what I'm dealing with these days, although I still, you know, do murders and guns and drugs like, like we all do. But um, over the time, it's really morphed into more of the, the paper cases. 
so I want to ask you a little. You had a big trial last year where you you were in a different seat. Yes, uh, you were, you were the prosecutor, and tell us a little about how that happened. And yeah, how does that happen? So yeah, I I had never, although I pros or I I tried um, seven jury trials as a DA, and I was only a DA for two years. I had never tried a murder as a DA. Um, I think the most serious charge that I tried as a district attorney was uh, a guy who went in and lied about his ident his identity at DMV. So, yeah. so, so falsifying business records or, you know, I, I don't know, it was like a D felony or something. Um, so, um, and, and, a, and a, bur a garage burglary was my other most serious uh, trial as a, as a prosecutor. So after <coughs> 18 years of being a defense attorney, um, I had actually read an article in the paper about a, a case where a, a current assistant district attorney's father had been murdered. And they appointed someone to represent um, the state because... The DA's office had a conflict, obviously, and I, I found that article very interesting, and it kind of stuck in my mind. About three months later, I got a call from a judge's clerk who used to be a DA with you and I and said, you know, the judge just wanted me to reach out to you and see if you might be interested in accepting this assignment. And because I had known about the case and the articles I read, I, I, I said yes immediately on the spot without thinking of, about it very much, um, <coughs> which I, at the time I had no idea how much of an endeavor it was going to be, but I'm glad I did it. Um, we ultimately, there was a, another attorney assigned who was the elected DA from Yates County, Todd Casella, someone you know. Yep. Um, and it was really, I got to know Todd very, very well. We worked hundreds of hours on the case. I put over 400 hours in the case. I'm sure Todd had a couple hundred hours in the case. Uh, it was a two week trial, a very contentious trial. Um, one that you know had some level of media attention, especially during COVID, that was kind of rare. Um, and we got a conviction um, in the first couple hours of jury deliberation. So it was really interesting to think exactly the opposite way that you've been thinking for the last 18 years. So take us through it, though, a little bit. You have your, sometimes we call them true believer defense lawyers. Mm -hmm. And you have your prosecutors' prosecutors. And, and they're going to be prosecutors till the day they die. And they're going to be defense lawyers till the day they die. And you are obviously not that because you're doing both things this year. Well, you know, I would have said that I was that true believer defense attorney, to be honest with you. Um, well, you were an assistant district attorney first. Right. And, and, and even then, when I, when I took the job at the, and this may be part of my story you don't know, uh, when I took the job at the Monroe County DA's office, I had actually applied at three other places to be a public defender. And I didn't get any of those jobs. <laughs> so ultimately, I decided that, you know, I, I knew certainly that many prosecutors go on to be um, significant defense attorneys. So I decided, well, you know, this is a job opportunity I have. The opportunity is here. Uh, those other doors closed for a reason. So why don't I go learn everything I can learn there, knowing that I'm ultimately going to be a defense attorney. So when I started at the DA's office here, I, I knew that, you know, I, I was expecting to only be there a couple years before I went out to do what I'm ultimately doing now. So I would have said, you know, that I, uh, that I was one of those defense attorneys who would always be a defense attorney. But um, I guess after 18 years, it was novel and interesting to do something different. And it, it was a case that I really believed in. Um, I obviously knew the ADA, who it was his father. I had known him from being a defense attorney. And oddly enough, I, I had never met his father, but I am close friends with two people who are close friends of his. So I think for all of those reasons, um, 
it, it was a more natural fit than it would have otherwise been. Well, I think you got to pick the case, too. This, is, this was a case. You chose to be a prosecutor on this case. Yes. Not, not the next 200 files that got thrown on your desk as a prosecutor right. and a boss telling you Correct. how they would be prosecuted. And I knew that being a special prosecutor is a little bit unusual. There was no one who could tell me what to do. Right. So there was no supervisor in the DA's office that would tell me you need to get this disposition or I want you to handle the case in this way. When you're the special prosecutor, you can literally do whatever it is you want to do. You can try the case your way. You can make an offer if you if you want. We did make an offer. It was rejected by the defendant. Um, and so, you, you know, I knew there wasn't I wasn't going to have a supervisor, if you will. And I also knew enough about the case from talking to the prior special prosecutor, the defense attorney and the judge's clerk that it was going to be a very technical case, meaning there was a lot of phone records, geodata, videos, uh, GPS coordinates. You know, it, it was going to be a very technical case uh, in terms of the way the evidence came in. There was no eyewitness, right? So it wasn't going to be a case where you, you, know, you traditionally have your eyewitness for the murder or you have a confession to the murder or the murder is itself on video. So I knew that this was going to be piecing together a lot of elements, and I thought that the different types of evidence we had, also financial records, medical records, uh, autopsy report, all of the technical stuff we had made it really appealing to me that this was going to be a little more interesting than, you know, calling a witness to say, yeah, that, that guy over there is the one who did it. I saw it, right? So um, so I thought it was going to be a unique challenge, an interesting challenge, and it was. Uh, and I know you mentioned Todd. We always mention Todd. He's one of our buddies. Yeah. And uh, how'd you end up just... How'd you end up with Todd and tell us a little about, you know, working with him? So I've met Todd originally through you and, um, you know, have known him um, for a little bit as being the, the DA in Yates County. Um, had, we had socialized some together. I knew Todd is the youngest elected DA in the state. I knew he was a hard worker. I knew he knew uh, the technical side of evidence. He's very computer oriented and technology oriented. So when I knew I had to have a second person on this and it needed to be someone who was an assistant district attorney or a district attorney. Um, Todd was my first choice. Um, and basically the court told me I could, as long as I could get someone to agree, I could pick whoever I wanted as long as they were an ADA somewhere. And uh, I called Todd and, and explained to him what was going on. And he, like me, immediately said, yes. Um, you know, he, he had said to me, you know, when am I ever going to get a chance to do a case with a defense attorney again? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so we sort of, opportunity. yeah, it was a unique opportunity. So he jumped on that. And I mean, our friendship has deepened dramatically as a result of that. I would say Todd's a very close friend of mine now. He's someone I knew before. He's a close friend of mine now. I mean, we went through, I mean, you've tried cases with people before, yeah. you know, you talk strategy, you talk how you're going to implement it. You talk about the jurors, you talk about the case and you know, it was really, um, he and I have very different skill sets and a very different perception on the world. He is definitely a dyed-in-the-wool prosecutor, for sure. Um, so it was, it, you know, we had our conflicts at times about, you know, when I wanted to make an offer, he didn't like the number I wanted to make. But, you know, we kind of worked through those issues. But largely, I think we were very complementary of each other. And, you know, it was interesting. When it came time to talk about the trial, we were calling 40-something witnesses, we decided that it made sense for him to handle everybody who's in law enforcement because that's what he always does. And in this particular case, there was a lot of unsavory characters. So, you know, drug users, drug dealers, people with extensive criminal histories, prostitutes. And so given what I do for a living, it was sort of more natural fit for me to, to, to work with those witnesses because I can build rapport with them and I understand kind of where they're coming from and, you know, it, the same way that we build rapport with our clients. So. That division worked really, really well. 
Um, and you know, I think that kind of bore out in, in how quickly the jury came back. Well, do you think being a prosecutor in that case and being a defense attorney normally, you're thinking as you're building this case, you're like, what would I do if I was defending this guy? Like, Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And it's part of the reason I put so many hours in because I looked at the case, what we had from law enforcement. There were three different law enforcement agencies involved, Brighton Police Department, Irondequoit Police Department, and the New York State Troopers. And I, and I found a number of holes, like a lot of holes. So I said to myself, okay, what can we do to close those holes? So the whole time from the time I was assigned the case in August and got delivered three boxes of paperwork, right, uh, until we tried the case um, last April, we were consistently trying to discover and fill the holes, right? And again, I think that's why the jurors came back so quickly is that I, I think we prevented you know, a lot of their escape routes or a lot of places they'd like to take the case, we, we walled it off so they couldn't go there. So, um, yeah, I think that worked well. What was interesting is now, first of all, I know about a lot of technology in a more intimate way than I did before that law enforcement has available to them. Because when we were doing this case, given, you know, a variety of factors, we had access to different parts of the state troopers that are do undercover work and do technological stuff. We had access to uh, the U.S. Secret Service and some currency tracing that was important to the case and some banking things that I didn't know about. And so I learned about all these things that the government can do that I had no idea. Which um, now you can apply. Right, or now you at least know they might be doing that to right. us, right? Or, so, yeah. or you can say to the cop, hey, you did you do have, that? You right, could have right, done this exactly, and chose right, not to. You right, could have right, done this and you right, chose not exactly. to. There's a so, good cross there. And so the other part of that was, in, you know, I've always had a pretty good rapport with law enforcement, but, um, you know, there, there's now people who I've become even closer with as a result of that, like the lead detective and, and some other folks who are really um, involved in the case. So... Um, the, the law enforcement was great with me. I think when I was first assigned, they were a little standoffish because all of them had been up against me in one way or another at some point yeah. in time. But it didn't take long, <coughs> excuse me, to build a rapport with them, and, and we worked pretty seamlessly and and developed a lot of, of good relationships there. So, are you still representing RPD? Or I Locust, do. Yeah, Locust Club. Yeah, so I represent the Rochester Police Department Locust Club, which is their union. And any time an officer fires their gun at work. Uh, in a use of force or any other significant use of force, I represent them until basically the criminal, if, if there is a criminal investigation, is closed. That, that as you may know, uh, in April of last year, became exclusively the jurisdiction of the Attorney General's office. So um, given some of the things that have happened with the AG's office in the past, those cases now drag out a lot longer than they used to, um, and, and, I, and there's more work that we need to do um, to, to make sure that those officers are protected just like any other you know, person who's being investigated by the authorities. So what's that like? You, I mean, you're, you're defending folks that these people arrest every day. Yeah. You, you've probably cross-examined most of them, or yeah. at least a lot Some of them. Some of them, yeah, for sure. And then they're like, okay, but uh, when push comes to shove and their ass is on the line, they want the best guy. Yeah, and I think you, know, I think you have to do that, right? Because if you didn't pick someone who has the experience that I have or you have or Joe D'Amelio has, you, you're – you know, you're getting a civil lawyer to represent you in a criminal, you know, in a criminal right. action. And so I think they became fairly uneasy with that concept, especially, you know, as, as the attorney general's office came in and, and the spectacle that I don't I, I wouldn't say they made it all on their own, but the spectacle that the Daniel Prude case became, where we have seven officers, eight officers are suspended, 
one of the officers wasn't even there, right, and was yeah. still suspended for a year, okay? And ultimately, after a grand jury presentation, all of the officers are cleared. The mayor still decides she wants to fire one of them, but never does it because she has her own problems yes. at that point. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of question as to whether, I think law enforcement has a lot of questions about whether they're going to be given a fair shake with the attorney general's office. So we're taking all of those cases very seriously as they come through at this point. You only got screwed up once and ruined somebody's life. That's right. Good That's right. Office That's right. Goes down if you don't do your work. That's right. Yeah. So you have a very successful record and you're a great trial attorney. What do you think sets you apart? and makes you successful? What? Um, I think it's two things. Um, I, I, I'm certainly, I would never tell anyone that I'm the smartest lawyer out there. I think the reason that I win more than other people win is that I generally out-prepare my opponent. I do all the work there is to do. We look under every rock, turn over every leaf. We do extensive investigations in every case. Um, and I also think that at the end of the day, this is a job about talking to people. This is essentially a glorified sales job. Okay, that's you're, an interesting perspective. You are, you are trying to sell a prosecutor to make you an offer. You're trying to sell a judge to approve the offer. You're trying to sell jurors on whatever it is. You know, when you start a jury trial, you have a pretty good idea of what your defense is, or at least you should. Uh, you have a pretty good idea of how the evidence is going to come in. So it, I think the, the last step is picking jurors that you know are inclined to buy your product. Right. Okay. So, for instance, if and how do you know how to pick well, the best? Yeah, that that that's, that takes time. That's an art <laughs> in a science and and luck, frankly, too. But you know, if you think of it sort of like a used car lot, the person who's going to buy a full size Tahoe is very different than the person who's going to buy the Prius, right? Yes. So you need to sort of figure out what it is you have. Do you have a full size Tahoe or do you have a Prius? Mm -hmm. And once you know what you've got, right, what your defense is. And so to get more specific about that, maybe your defense is this guy's the wrong person. He wasn't ID, you know, they can't ID him or the ID of him isn't very good. Then you may want witnesses who understand science and recollection and, and you know, how someone could make that sort of a mistake and, and, and question a lot of things, right? If you have a self-defense case, like, yes, my client shot this guy and killed him, but he did it because he was about to get killed himself, you, you might want a very different juror. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking for a juror who maybe believes in the Second Amendment, a gun owner, you know, things of that nature. So if you know what it is that your what your product is, you try to, to, to select people based on what they tell you, based on your observations of them, based on, you know, social science, you try to select people that are going to be more sympathetic towards your case, okay. right? And so I think that's the, those are the three elements, right? You outwork your opponent, you know how to talk to people, and you pick the people who are going to like your product. And if you can do that, especially if you can do it better than your opponent, yeah. you've got an advantage. Now, sometimes the facts are unsurmountable, right? So If there's a murder on HD video, that's tough to defend. It's tough to defend, your right? Your guy gets so, pulled over with a kilo of cocaine riding shotgun, that's tough to defend. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you can do it, but it means that you're employing everything you have available to you to try to get the best result possible for your client. And, you know, Bob knows this well, too. You know, one of the reasons that you win trials is that you avoid trying cases you know you're going to lose. Under, under that scenario, right. the, uh, there's a murder on HD video or there's a, a kilo of cocaine in the passenger seat. You, you say to your client, hey, look, 
we got to try to get the best situation we can here. So would you yes. say you won 14? If you tried 50, you probably still would have won 14. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, because there are cases that you know you don't really have a great shot at. Now, murders can be tough, right, because often there is no offer. So now you have nothing to lose, right? So, so those cases are a little bit different. And, and, you know, sometimes there's other cases of a political nature, not, I don't mean involving politicians, but... Like right now, you know, they've arrested this quote-unquote Park Ave rapist, right? In this political climate at this moment in time, that's going to be a very difficult case to resolve, right, as opposed to end up going to trial. So, you know, sometimes you're forced into trying a case, but, you know, generally we know, it, it, look, if you've got, you know, a kilo of cocaine in the passenger seat when the, when the cop walks up, we probably ought to figure out what's the least amount of time you can get and move on, right? Right. So... so. I don't know if we want to get, I want to get a little into your background. Sure. Because I think it's really interesting and, and something I've talked about before on here is you, know, you have these different lawyers who, at least the lawyers who I respect, and you're one of them. And, and you know, Judge Kitty is always one of my favorites. Sure. And, and I grew up in the country. You grew up in the country. She grew up in the country. And it, But tell us a little about your background um, just generally and kind of how that led you to uh, being a really successful trial attorney. And people probably don't know you. You live in a big house in Brighton now with a fancy yeah, car and all right, that stuff. Yeah, right, right. But, uh, yeah, so I grew up in Canisius, New York, um, in the middle of nowhere. It was probably six or seven miles to the closest grocery store. Um, I, that wasn't an, an ideal environment for me. I didn't really like that. Most of my life was focused on how to get someplace more metropolitan or more urban. Um, and... I, you know, was not an exemplary student as a kid. So in, until I got to law school, my grades were average at best. So I bounced around from, you know, community college to regular college. And, you know, I think by the time I graduated, I went to five or six schools. Um, and, and I always wanted to be a lawyer. I, I had one, I'm one of four kids. Uh, my second oldest brother, I'm the youngest, um, went to prison when I was like eight years old. And I think that experience, what that did to my family, sort of the, the domino effect of things that happened there, kind of was one of the things that led me in this direction. But I think there were other motivators too, including, you know, I like the fact that there's a winner and a loser in this business, right? It's a very competitive business. I like the fact that you can make a decent living in this business. I like the fact that it can, you know, sort of transcend you out of your rural roots, if that's what you want to do. So, I mean, I think there was a lot of appealing things to it for me. By the time I graduated college, I thought, I can't go to school anymore. I'm like, done with school. No more school. And then I went out in the real world and worked for a couple of years, and I was ready to go back to school. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just for me, and just, just for me, I, I think what you said is kind of strike a nerve with me is I grew up pretty rural yep. uh, myself, and it's the same set of rules. If you're a trust fund kid or you're a kid from the country, you go in the courtroom, the rules are the rules. Absolutely. And if you can convince those 12 people or that judge that you're right, you prepare, right? You can win, it, and, absolutely, and, and that's fun for me, and it, it's fun for you too, right? It's, absolutely. Uh, what do you enjoy the most? Um, I enjoy helping people. I mean, I think that's a critical part of it, um, especially when they want the help and they're trying to help themselves too. Um, I, I, look, I enjoy winning. That's absolutely. I feel like the thrill of, of a trial. It be. is an adrenaline rush in a way that I've never experienced in anything else. One of my pastimes, one of my hobbies, is racing cars. Oh. But the adrenaline rush is not the, as strong really? in racing a car as it is waiting for a jury to return a verdict. Wow. The, the one thing that's the same about them both is that when you are doing it, 
you cannot be distracted by any other thing. And that's what I like about both of them. So if you're in the race car turning a lap at Watkins Glen and there's cars around you, it, it, it is not possible for your mind to wander because you're thinking about how are you at the right speed in this particular point? When do I have to break? Who's next to me? Who's in front of like, mm-hmm. There's too many moving pieces to, to let your mind go anywhere other than what right. you're doing right there. And being on trial is sort of the same, same. right? Because when, whether you are listening to a witness testify or you're cross-examining a witness, that is your sole focus. You can't be distracted by anything. You have to, you know, because you may know what their report said. You may know what their grand jury testimony said. But they may not say the same thing here today. So, I mean, it, it is critically important that you're 1,000% focused in those moments. So there's that similarity. But the adrenaline rush is beyond anything else I've ever done, whether that's, you know, rock climbing or, you know, last Thanksgiving my daughter and I went and went on the outside of the CN Tower where you can walk around oh. on the outside at the top. Yeah. But, like, none of the, you know, none of those things are the same as waiting for a, a jury. I feel like there have to be crazy moments in trials. Are there any, have, do you know or can think of any crazy moments that you're like, I didn't even see that coming? So, yeah, I mean, I've had a, certainly one acquittal that I was just blown away by. I was, like, totally shocked that they acquitted my client. I mean, I was trying not to let my jaw hit the table. So, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a robbery case where a couple of guys had gone to a shady car dealership and bought a car in cash, and then two hours later they went back with ski masks on or whatever to rob the cash that they had paid for the car with, right? Uh, And my guy at the time had an ankle bracelet on, and back then there was only, like, I want to say maybe 20 people in Rochester with an ankle bracelet. So the parole took this book of all the pictures of people with an ankle bracelet over to the guys who got robbed, and they opened it up, and, and out of 20 they picked my guy. And they came in and testified. This is what they now. I cross-examined them a lot about running a shady business, not declaring the money to the IRS. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, yeah, that that doesn't so. mean that's not the guy, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And so at the end, the jury acquitted him, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> sure glad I asked that question. Yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah. that's the craziest cases. But are there any cases? I always love asking this question. Is there any case that's really impactful to you that you hold to your heart close? Yeah. So um, in, in 2010, I defended a, a, a guy named Darren Venable who was charged with murder. It, it, he was involved in a fight at a fraternity party at, a party at the University of Rochester, and he unfortunately killed his classmate. He was acquitted in self-defense. It was a very contentious case. It was a, a, a case where the families on both sides were very invested in the trial. Um, and when we got a not guilty verdict, a lot of people in the audience actually got arrested for their level of outburst and outbreak oh and gosh. behavior. Um, and, you know, it, it was a case where I really tracked with my client over the years. And, and I did it with my partner, Brian DeCarlis. We weren't partners at the time. but um, And then a couple of years ago, we actually went to his wedding in, in Long Island. So, I mean, just a great family, a great result for, for someone who I truly believe deserved the result. Um, and someone who's gone on to do great things with his life um, after, you know, a, a lot of people, even if they're acquitted, sometimes can't get beyond the stigma of having been charged or, you know, and, and one of the things that's frustrating, and I'm sure you've seen this too, you can be acquitted, but Google still has all the news stories. Right. Right. And when and, and Darren Venable is a fairly unique name. Yeah. So he had a very, very difficult time even though he graduated from a prestigious university with a great GPA, he started off working in the FedEx store because it was the only job he could get. Mm-hmm. 
And then over time, you know, he worked his way up to now he's a, you know, he's a headhunter or a corporate headhunter in a very prestigious agency, but it took a long time for that to happen. Certainly a lot longer than it should have, yeah. but for, for this incident. So. And there's nothing that people can do to kind of, I mean, the news articles are news articles, right? I mean, right? You, you, you can't can, remove them. Right. You can reach out to each agency and ask them to remove the article. My experience has been most of them won't do it. Okay. Right. Because they were arrested. They were charged. Right. They did have a trial. They were acquitted. So all of that coverage, right, true. is it's not inaccurate. Right, right, yeah. exactly. So, so you don't really have much of a leg to stand on, right. you know, to have it removed. Yeah, it kind of sucks because in some way you are, like, you're still convicted in some sort of way. Right. Public is and, and, see it, it that way. and it had real consequences for Darren. Like he he had been an ROTC student, but he was not able to get into the military. He was not able to get in the New York City Fire Department, all as a result of that case, even though he was acquitted. So there's still challenges for people, even 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 if they are successful at trial, mm-hmm. right? So there's a guy that you and I are friends with, and you more than me, and. Uh, your early career, talk, maybe a little talk a little about Tom Kakuzi and uh, your days when you were a, a new defense lawyer and people didn't know you. Sure, who you were. Yeah, so when I left the DA's office after two years, I didn't. It happened kind of quickly. I didn't know exactly where I was going to go. Um, and Tom Kakuzi was a pillar of the defense community at that point in time. For those who don't know, he represented Arthur Shawcross and, and was just a damn good guy. Yeah, a really good guy, a really good lawyer. Until um, the day he died, he still did assigned counsel work. He, he represented the indigent as well as his paying clients. He had a number of high profile cases over the years and Tom was good enough uh, to take me in when I left the DA's office and I worked uh, in an office with him for the first five years. <laughs> we had our own cases, but he was always there to answer a question. He was always there to give advice. You tell us a Kakuzi story, though. I'm sure you have. Uh, I'm sure you have a few. Uh... Well, my favorite was or one of my favorites about Tom is that you know he smoked till the day he died. Okay, even indoors. <laughs> so he had his office, and he had taken plexiglass and put it inside the return vents so that no smoke could get sucked out of his office into <laughs> the other rooms. And he would, depending on the wind, he would have one window open or closed or whatever. It was, it, it, he literally took smoking Marlboros to an art where, you know, he would have this window open there, this window open there, close this vent here so that the neighbors wouldn't complain when they smell smoke in the hallway. So he was always analyzing and, um, and, and you know, and thinking about things. He, he also, uh, he, he had a, a great trial down in Livingston County where, a young man was accused of menacing a police officer. There were some DEC officers who were patrolling a particular area during hunting season, and the claim was is that Tom's client pointed the gun at him and you know, threatened him with it, essentially, but didn't say anything, which was sort of odd. So they, they went to, to trial, and the judge said to, to Tom, he goes, are you sure you want to do this? Because I really don't want to put your client in prison. He's a really young kid with no record. And he goes, well, you better hope I win then. <laughs> and, and ultimately he did. Um, you know, so it was, uh, he, he really had, what, what I liked about him, especially, you know, he was 67 when he passed. But, you know, in those later years as he got older, he, he sort of had the opinion. He was like, I'm so old, no one can do anything to me. So I really don't give a shit. I'm just going to tell him how I feel. <laughs> so that was, that was really, uh, you know, he, he would tell judges when they, he thought they were wrong. He would, you know, 
especially after he knew he had cancer, I think it gave him a little liberty to really push the envelope. Which I had a case you know. with him. I was a prosecutor. I had a case with him. I was a young prosecutor out in Greece, town court. And, uh, you know, you file an omnibus motion as a defense lawyer, and you got all this stuff in there. Right. Well, I get a motion from Kakuzi, one paragraph. And uh, so we get out to court. I answer whatever it is. I'm like, Tom, why did you file this motion? He goes, well, all the other stuff I don't deserve to win, but this I should win. So I figured <laughs> I would just write the important part. And the judge says kind of like, Tom, why is your motion only a pay? He goes, Judge, that's all I need. I'm right about this. And, and then he got it dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Tom was an incredible guy. Well, all right, so we have a lot of uh, law students that listen sure. to us. Yeah. Um, I know that you talked about picking a jury, but is there any other advice that you would give to a law student? You know, I mean, yeah, so it's, it's interesting, right, because we've all been to law school. We know our classmates who have done different things, and, you know, I have a niece who's a young lawyer, and, you know, I, you know it's, it's a, if you read anything about being a lawyer, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of people who don't stick with it. I think you have to find an area of law that you love and do that because it's the only way you're going to, A, persevere in this career because it is hard and it is stressful and it is difficult. It's the only way that it's going to be lucrative for you because if you love it, you're probably going to become good at it. And it, it's, the, it's the only way that you really are going to be fulfilled, right? So for me personally, you know, negotiating a contract so a multinational corporation makes an extra $100,000, eh, don't really care. Doesn't do it for you. Doesn't do it for me. If I can save someone from going to prison, that, you know, if I can, if I can save right. a life, essentially, that is something that really um, lights me up. And, and so here, here's one thing that very few people know because it's just in the works. I'm actually starting uh, an executive LLM in tax in January. And so an LLM is an advanced law degree. It's, you have to get a law degree, a JD, before you can get an LLM. Um, there's LLMs in a variety of areas, but the two that are really common are tax and patent because they're pretty complicated. And so the one thing that's really lighting me up more now than, than you know, has in the past is these white-collar cases that I was talking about. And there's almost always a tax consequence along with those cases. And I recently, for someone I've known for a period of time, it, you know, they came to me and said, hey, look, I've got a mess. I got audited by the IRS. We tried to defend ourselves in the audit. They say we owe $138,000. I don't have $138,000. I don't know what to do. I know this isn't the kind of law that you do, but what do you think I should do? And and because of who he was and, and the way that I knew him and the circumstances, I said, you know, what? I've never done this before, but I don't think you can afford to hire a tax lawyer. Um, but if you want, I'll, I'll do it. I'll try it. So I, I ended, it, it had already made its way into tax court, which virtually never happens. But because of the inactivity of the defendants, essentially, that's where it got, right? Because they needed a judge to say, you have to pay. You like, you're going to have to do something, right? Yeah. So it got involved in the case. I got admitted to tax court. I looked at their tax returns. It was absolutely ridiculous. Their prior tax preparer had died. They were unqualified. They were from a very rural part of the state, Right. And so I had, you know, I started working through just with what I know about income tax, working through it. I had a CPA that I <laughs> work with make some suggestions. And we ultimately went back and explained to them why the audit should have been way different than it really was. And we ended up paying $21,000, which they then... 138 Yeah. And so, like, you know, this is like an ordinary person who essentially had what we would now call a side hustle, right? The audit was all problems from 
the little side business. I mean, the guy is a plumber at a prison. His wife is a social worker. They don't know. I mean, they have no, you know, the, the social worker has a master's in social work, but in terms of running a business or keeping books, they, they're clueless, right? So this whole mess had happened and it was really threatening to take their home and, you know, they weren't sure they'd be able That's to keep scary. the business, right? And so like that was really rewarding. So, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm getting more and more into that because it, it, it feels very similar to criminal defense where you're represent, you're helping ordinary people fight the government. Right. And I enjoy... You're making a difference yes. on that person's life. Yeah, and I enjoy helping ordinary people fight the government, right? So... Um, and, Sounds thrilling. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, and, and so I think that, that the LLM and tax is going to help with some of the white collar cases I do because they involve all these tax issues and whatever else. And I'm, and I'm interested in defending people in, you know, corporations, smaller corporations, you know, like businesses we would own or our families own. Um, we're, we're doing all these Camp Lejeune cases right now, and I'm meeting with a guy. He's a Marine, and I, he, he says to me, Mr. King. You know you got to take down the government, right? <laughs> I, he says, U.S. government, they don't lose that much. I go, well, we go against the government yeah, they, quite a bit. They lose plenty. We, we go against the government quite a bit. We're, we got the elements. They passed the law. We're going we're gonna to try to prove your case. He says, okay, but we got to beat the government. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think that that, you know, I, I think that in the future, um, you know, if I want a little bit less stressful litigation or I don't want to try as many cases, I think audit defense is something I'm, I'm pretty interested in. And, I, you know, I've helped a business owner here who had a big state sales tax problem avoid a criminal conviction, and we knocked the numbers down from, like, 480000 to 200000 And, you know, I'm dealing with an IRS case right now where they allege that someone didn't declare $4.5 million worth of income. So, like, you know, there's more and more of that stuff out there, and it's – it, it's a it's a niche inside of a niche, if you will. But those are the kind of things that we get interested in, right? So, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of it's kind of our relationship. And when I started out, when I started the law firm, James was the top guy. He was the A number one guy. He's winning a murder trial every two weeks. He's in the newspaper, and, and we knew each other a little bit socially. And uh, we've come we've come a long way. And I was. I think I was 29 years old, and I would just call. I had his phone number, so I would call him up all the time. I've called James. I, I, I can't even tell you a thousand times. He always picks up the phone. You, you've helped me a, a tremendous amount, and I know you've helped many, many other lawyers. But what I think, and people call me now. Sure. And people continue to call you. Yeah. And we help those people, but I don't think that's common in every area. Um, but but how do you feel about you know? In some ways, we're competitors. We've sure. worked, we've worked together, but just kind of your views on lawyers in general and the bar and, and how we should collaborate or, you know, I, I think you get the question. Like, what's your role with working with other lawyers? Yeah, so I think in general lawyers suck. I, I, think, yeah, in gen I think in general your, a your average lawyer does a very bad job of talking to people like a normal person. Whether, whether they need a will or they need to start a corporation or they're getting divorced or they have a criminal charge, I think that they want you to talk to them like you're a regular person. They don't want to hear legalese. They don't want to hear all these expensive words we learned in law school. They want to, and I think one of the reasons you and I are both successful is we're relatable. We know how, you know, we can talk to people. We, you know, we, we didn't grow up, you know, with a silver spoon or a trust fund or whatever else. And so, you know, we grew up around very blue collar, regular people, right? And so, you know, what I think, what I like in a lawyer is someone who is doing their best for their clients, they're fighting hard for their clients, uh, and they're treating them like regular people. 
I mean, the people that you and I represent are already ashamed of what's happened. They're already embarrassed by what's happened. Usually their life is in turmoil. The last thing they need is for the person who is supposed to be fighting for them to be judgmental of them or to talk down to them or to do any of that. So I think in general, lawyers, as a general rule, need to do a lot better job of that. Um, I think this legal community in general and the criminal defense bar, I think people really collaborate well together. I, I've never been upset if someone took a case away from me. Most people haven't been upset if I've taken a case away from them. I want, you know, whatever client to get the best outcome that they can. And sometimes there's personality conflicts, right? It just means, you know, just recently I had a client who, you know, after a couple of months together, I said, listen, I just want to give you your money back and you can find someone new because the the animosity that we have in our relationship is not helping your case, right? Right. So, like, you know, he's like, well, I don't think it's fair for you to give me all my money back. And he said, okay, well, how much do you think is fair? He said, a number. I said, fine. I gave him the rest of his money back and said, you know, here's some people you can go talk to. Uh, and he hired another lawyer, and they're off doing what they do. I don't know how that's ultimately going to turn out, but I know it's going to turn out better than what was going on between the two of us. So, um, you know, I, I think um, that the criminal bar in Monroe County is very collegial. I think we work well together. I think, you know, if you have information, sometimes you have co-defendants, you have information about, you know, your case that's going to help someone else, people give it to you. Like, you know. Well, we all have these weird issues that come up, and I know absolutely. I call you, and, and sometimes you call me. I remember the first time James called me, hey, I want to run something by you. I'm like, holy shit, we made it. <laughs> the, uh, uh, but somebody dials you up, your phone rings, your assistant says, James, I got I got Joe, yep. Joe Blow lawyer on the phone. What yep. goes through your mind? You're like, this guy's my adversary. This guy is trying to take clients from me. I mean, I know you take the call, but sure. people wouldn't understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, look at, at the point they're calling me about a case, the person's already hired them. So yeah. so what difference does it make, right? Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, um, helping them help their client is the best thing that you can do. And you hope that you know, in, in a certain situation, a client comes along for them that they, it's not right for them. And, and maybe they think of me to send it to. I know you've done that. You know, there's been people who are maybe too close to you. You yeah. didn't want to represent them. He said, James, will you represent this person? Because right. I, I, it's, it's going to be ugly for me if things don't go well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm too busy right now. I'm in the middle of a trial. I can't grab this case. Do you want it? So, like, you know, I, I feel like that all that goodwill comes back to you. You know, yeah. realistically. And, and I think it's the right thing to do. It's people, the right thing to do, for people sure. People don't, um, I don't know, I, I talk about it at different times, and, you know, we, we always kind of talk to the younger lawyers or law students or kids that are thinking about law school. And, you know, one of the things that I know you do, and it's, it's something that I've done, and you've been the other side of it, is you ask decent people for help. Usually right. they give it to you. Exactly. You say, hey, I could use a hand here, and you're a decent person, and you're not asking for too much. People will help you. Right. Well, and I'll tell you the other thing that I think, you know, if you're, if you're talking about advice for young lawyers, the people who are working for the government right now, whether they are a, a public defender or, or an assistant district attorney, they're not going to be there forever. So to the extent that you can do something to build relationships with the private bar while you have that job, I'm not telling them to give a better deal than what they can, but if someone needs an adjournment, consent to it. If someone asks you to find out you know, a piece of information they're looking for, help them out. If you can give them some consideration on a case, do that. Because those relationships, I mean, ultimately all you have as a lawyer is your reputation, right? right. And so, you know, you start building that the first day you start working. And I think a lot of people who are working for the government don't start thinking about that until they're not working at the government anymore. And then it's a little late. I got a story. I shouldn't. I, should, I shouldn't tell it. I shouldn't tell it on here, but I'm going to anyway. I'm like my. This is why week. people listen. This right, is right. the stories you shouldn't right. tell, but you tell it. Well, 
I'm in my first week as an ADA, and this guy comes out. He's, he's a defense lawyer, pretty well-known defense lawyer, and, and he wants some de- he, he wants some deal on a DWI reduction. He says, you can't prove your case. And I say, well, I think I can. And he says, you don't know what you're doing. This, this is a short version, but you don't know what you're doing. I'm like, well, I think I can prove the case, whatever. You, you tell the judge. I don't care. And he says, you have no clue what you're doing. And I'm like, listen, I might not know what I'm doing, but I know a cocksucker when I see one. <laughs> And you can kiss my ass. <laughs> so anyway, he calls the boss on me. And the boss, little does he know, the boss feels pretty similar about this guy <laughs> as I do. So I think I got a promotion. <laughs> well, you know, when you talk about all, you know, everything I did to help you, but you and I knew each other well before you left the DA's office. Oh, yeah. Because we, and we had a number of cases together back then, and we knew a lot of the Who same won? people. I don't think we ever did a trial. No, we didn't do any trials. I remember we had a crazy case in Webster, Larry from USA. Yes. What was your client? Yes. Who, and it was, and Aaron Sperano was involved. And that, that was early on. But so the first, I'll tell you the first time I met James, um, Bill Gargan's my boss. And he walks in, Bill Gargan was, was a boss who I enjoyed as a person. And he says, okay, this is how you're going to become a good lawyer. And, and this is the, the art of Bill Gargan. He goes, you're going to go out to Parrington Town Court. And there's a clerk out there. Her name's Jan Spencer. She's had like 30 great prosecutors in a row. And you just make, you make Jan Spencer's top five favorites, you're going to be a great lawyer. So I go out there and I say, Jan, I'm going to be in your top. Nice to meet you. I'm going to be in your top five favorites. You just tell me what I need to do. So <laughs> she thinks it's funny. She's cool. We're, we're still friends. And she tells me, well, I'm going to show you one of the boys in the top five. He's coming in here today. And, and, and here comes, so I think I'm, you know, I'm like 26. I think I'm hot shit. <laughs> it, here comes Nobles, like the C parts. He walks in. Jan Spencer <laughs> loves James Nobles. So I knew who he was. That was like the first couple weeks I was a DA, and that's how I knew who he was. And I knew that Jan was respected. She'd been doing it for over 20 sure. years. She was very well respected by the highest, uh, you know, my boss. Mm-hmm. And she thought James was a really good lawyer and he had been a prosecutor in that court. He was a he was taking a lot of assignments in the court. So we had several yeah. um, several cases out there. And he was smart. So when I was a prosecutor, I'd go against James. He would ask for, you know, five or 10 or 15% more than he deserved. But he wouldn't ask for, I don't want ACD on a murder. Right, but, right. But, uh, he knew how to do it, and he knew how to say, "Here's what you're like. Here's the reason you should give me a little extra." And I was like, "Okay, good enough." And he would get a good deal, and we would be good. And I, you know, I think you know another tip that I would give young lawyers, young law students, is that I've been a very successful trial lawyer, and some of those cases, some of those negotiations, some of the trials have been extremely contentious. Okay, however, you win so much more if you were nice as long as you can possibly be nice, right? There are times in this job where you have to fight and it gets personal, mm-hmm. right? Hopefully it doesn't stay personal. Hopefully after it's over, it can, it can simmer down. But I have always practiced in a way that I try to be respectful to everybody, including my adversary. I try to explain my position. I try to ask for things instead of tell until the point where if the person's being unreasonable and we have to fight, then we'll fight. But the reality is, if you save that for 5% of the time, the judge realizes that it's important because all of a sudden you're fighting and you're not a fighter. The DA realizes they're in trouble because they've never seen you fight before. Right. right? And, yeah. Or the witness who's on the stand 
you know, I always, even if you know it's going to be a contentious witness, the first rule is get them to agree with you on all the easy stuff you need them to say, right? Yeah. Then get into it. Because once, once you piss them off, they don't want to tell you anything anymore, right? right? Oh, yeah. so, so be nice. Get the easy stuff, you know? And then when you, we've gotten all the easy stuff you can get, if you have to turn, you know, ad, you know into, a, into an adversary, into a more aggressive position and take that position, then that's what you do. But... You know, you get so much more, and most of the time you get everything you want by trying to negotiate yeah. right, and being straightforward. I feel like I've heard a lot of attorneys, and I, I mean, I think well, you've a heard lot me of tell the good attorneys have a pretty calm demeanor for sure. the most part until they need to be. Even if we're pissed inside, we don't, you, yeah. you don't let that show, right? Yeah. You just kind of become more right. aggressive. You yes. Can, but it's hard to become less aggressive. So right. in day one, and there, there are the defense lawyers who take that. Come time. in aggressive right from the beginning. But and I feel it, like I wouldn't take you serious. If that's how you come into a courtroom every single day. I'm, and ultimately, like, that's what happens, today, right? Right, exactly. Know? That's what happens. Well, that, that, yeah. I used to say, the clients ask you that sometimes. I say, you get that guy who fights all the time, and let's get his last 100 results right. and put him right here. And we'll take my last 100, and we'll put him right here. Right, right. We'll, it, it will beat that guy by nine. He might win one that we don't win, and we're going to win 90 that he doesn't win. But right. I also feel like that's stereotypical of... Like people assume that a good attorney is someone who comes in and starts yelling and screaming and well, being chaotic, and that's not no, true. That's I mean, not the I reality. Mean, a good attorney can be aggressive. Right. They don't and have to And there's a time and place right, correct. and need for it. But, correct. You know, like when you think of an attorney, you go, like you watch a movie. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it, and sometimes it behooves you to not elevate as well, right? So, I, I you know, a number of these murder trials. You know, you're cross-examining the lead detective, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was one guy who, you know, I was asking regular questions. He started getting really upset, and he's yelling at me. And I'm asking the questions normal. He's yelling back, right? Are you calling me a liar? I'm like, no, I'm just asking a question. Right? So it gets very elevated. And so finally, in front of the jury, I say to him, I said, you know, officer or investigator, why are you yelling? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, look, I, I'm sorry if I've offended you. I didn't mean to, mm -hmm. but you know, let's it try to take it down a notch yeah. and see if we can get you know. And like the jurors, like, thought he was an asshole, right? Because right? I wasn't being mean; he yeah. was just being mean, right? right? Like, because he got defensive about something he should have done that he didn't do, and he thinks I'm calling out his competency. I, I'm just asking him questions in a normal tone, in a normal pace, in a normal way, but. That's how he responded. And, right. and so my response to him in that way highlighted the absurdity of it, right? And so then in my closing, I was like, why do you think he got so mad? Right? He got mad because he knew he got exposed for not doing his job right. Right? right. Like, and, and I didn't even have to say that in the cross-examination, right? So it, it, was, yeah. it was obvious, right? Yeah. So, so even in instances when your adversary becomes elevated and hostile, I still think you don't have to. I mean, sometimes you do. Sometimes you have to do that. But 99% of the time you don't. And I think lawyers, you know, everything on TV portrays us very differently than reality. And I think, you know, if you don't know anything other than law school, mm -hmm. you don't have any real world experience, you don't know what works and doesn't work, right? Well, that, that's the thing. We ask that question to everybody who's in here. And the people who know, we've had some pretty good lawyers in here. And they say, you want to learn? Go to court. Go, right. Go, go find somebody who's won some cases and just go watch them. Right. And uh, I mean, we all know it now, but it's really disconcerting when you get to bar preparation and you realize that what you were taught in the classes is not actually what the law is. Right. 
people, and it has nothing to do with how you get a result. <laughs> right, right, well, right, right. You might, you could know every bit of law. I mean, there's lawyers who know way more about the law than me. And me too. Tell them to go get a result in court. Right. It's, it's also one of the things I don't like about virtual. So when we used to go to court and we would wait for our cases to get called, you would sit there. And, and you would hear the judges talk over and over and over for years and years and years. And you would hear Mr. Nobles make an argument, Mr. D'Amelio make an and, and you would see how that, what that felt like. Well, now you do a, a Zoom call, you never, it's see, just you. you never see any of these other people. So all, right. the, all these guys now that we haven't been, to, we barely go to court. Right, right. No, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, you can learn, you learn a lot by watching other people. I, and I think you and I have learned a lot of what not to do by watching oh. other people because oh, you yeah. see that too. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, 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 you know, there's no substitute for experience. That's really the bottom line. Oh, yeah. And experience, it doesn't all have to be murder trial. I know we talk about no. murder trials because they're cool. I mean, experience picking juries. I did most of the jury trials I did were misdemeanors. And guess what? Picking misdemeanor juries, it's still picking juries. You, you In some them. ways, it's harder because you have less people you can kick off just because you want to, right? right. So, like on a misdemeanor, you get three. And That's you get, it. And you get on no, a murder, wow. you get twenty. Well, you do right. a murder. Everybody's paying attention. There's right. a dead guy over here. Right. What well, you're right. talking about? It's a Super Bowl guy. of trials. Right. 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 Somebody stole a bag of chips from uh, from the gas station. It's hard like, to keep eh. their head shaped. How oh. much do I really need to pay attention? Seven right. Eleven's not a bag of chips. Right. The guy called his ex girlfriend, uh, and there was an order of protection. Right. This is a phone call. Like, right. We're gonna right. put this guy. In Why jail are for we a phone here? Call? Why are we here? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No comment. <laughs> All right, my last question. Sure. How do you keep a balanced life? He does. If you do, oh, like, what do you, what do you enjoy? Because being an attorney, especially in criminal defense attorney, it's heavy, right? There's yeah. a lot that's going on. How do you? Keep I don't mean to talk for you, and I hope you don't take that as disrespect. No, no. But, but it's a lifestyle. Yeah. Doing this is, and we've been, we went to conference together in Florida, and we're both taking phone calls. Right. Like you. You're, like you're, you're working. You're, you're working never not all. working. You've exactly. been working 24 right. hours a day yep. for 20 years. And the reality of our type of law is that when people need us, it's often at bad hours, and they often need you right away. Right. Right? So, like, you know, I, I mean, I can remember being on a private beach in the Bahamas on a family vacation. It was before my daughter was born, but I was with my in-laws, my brother-in-law, my wife and her aunt and uncle, and I am taking a call. Like I'm walking around trying to find the best cell service, yeah. taking a call on the beach at a private island in the Caribbean, and every other person there, the other seven people think there, I think I'm an asshole, right? Uh, like you know, at least like you well, at the sunrise, right? To look right, at right. Your right. I, mean, I remember a white collar case that we did, and we had just settled a big civil case, and I was, I went out with Mike Pattison for a beer, yeah, or. I think I had had two or three beers, and Nobles calls me up. We got, I got a co-defendant. You got to get over here right now. Right, I'm right. gonna pick you up. I'm like, James, I've, I've been at the bar for the last mm -hmm. hour. He's like, I don't care where you are. I'm picking you up, and, and right. we're going to help these yeah. people. And I said, okay, well, just we'll just give it an them, hour let, so you can just get let them together, know where I'm coming yeah. from. And they're like, <laughs> so the way that I've gotten to a better balance because everything that Bob's saying is true. Right. The way that I've gotten to a better balance is. Post-COVID, I've realized I don't need to make the money that I was making before. So I just say no sometimes. And I just say, okay. you know what? I, I mean, I, I'm not taking new cases right now. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes that'll go on for a couple of weeks. Is that or hard to do? Or it you... is very, it, it, it's, it was really hard to do it all in the beginning. 
Now it's only hard to do. Like I, I passed on one case about a month ago that I really wanted to do. It was right in my wheelhouse. It was Medicaid fraud, white collar, involving Houston and Atlanta, millions of dollars. But I knew that if I took that case, I was going to have to be in Atlanta and Houston like three or four times in the next two weeks. And my whole family just gotten over COVID. Yeah. It was Thanksgiving. I was tired. I was like, I just like getting Can't. on a plane four times in the next two weeks is just not in the cards for me. Right. Right. With everything, you know, we're going into Christmas and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no. Nah, Which just, I think says a lot about you to say, you know what? Like I could and I could run myself into the ground. Right. But it's not. And it was a case it. I really wanted to do. If I, yeah. if without that, and you, you know, plus it, you know, and, and quite frankly, you know, I'm looking at the numbers for the end of the year and I've been, you know, I had a pretty good year. I don't, I don't need to do this if I don't want to. Right. And so, right. but most of them are, are fairly easy to pass on at this point, but if it's a case you really like, it's kind of hard. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're at a point where you can take the cases that you want to take and, and you don't have to take every phone call that comes right. through the door. And frankly, just days also that factored into that same decision, just days before that I took a big case here locally it's a tax evasion case. It's a good fee. It's interesting. So, like, it's I going to take up a lot of it, your so time. So, I had just done that two or three days before, right? Which I knew that case was also going to require a lot of immediate attention, right? Right. So it was just like I, I just didn't want to push. So kind of knowing your boundaries. Yeah. It's good advice. You know, at another time I would have taken it, but it just kind of didn't fit out right. Yeah. You know. So. I guess we'll wrap it. Yeah, I wrap it up. Okay. We'll wrap Thanks. it up. Always grateful. Uh, where can people find you if they want to see Nobles Defense? Yeah, so Google my name, James Nobles, Rochester, New York, is probably the easiest way. My website is noblesdefense.com, N-O-B-L-E-S-D-E-F-E-N-S-E.com. Um, you know, uh, you, you'll see me in the newspaper here and there and on TV here and there. What I you do social media, Twitter? No, nah, I don't. I, I'm done with all that. Yeah, no, no take, my daughter does, but not me. Um, you know, the other the other thing, you know, it's, it's interesting – just as the last note about that, what a lot of people don't realize, I know you you get this because you've been in the same position. Everybody always wants to talk about these big cases, Charlie Tan, Darren Venable, you know, Bob Wiesner, I represented Maggie Brooks' husband in the LDC thing, all of that. The truth of the matter is, is that my very best results, people have never heard about because they didn't even get charged. Like we were able to make the case go away. Dismissed. Right. Yeah. I mean, I represented a very big contractor in the Bob Morgan $4 billion bank fraud scandal. Never got charged. Mm -hmm. First day, they were like, we're going to charge your guy. He, he should come in and cooperate. That was the case I went from the bar. <laughs> right, that's the case you went from the bar, right? So, like, you know, like, so so really, people always want to talk about what they perceive as your really successful cases. The truth is your most successful cases, no one's ever even heard of. So would you suggest if you think that you're under investigation to hire an attorney sooner than later? A hundred percent, because once you're charged – you can never become uncharged. Gotcha. Maybe you get the case dismissed, right. but it still could be still on, the, on social media mm -hmm. or in the, in the news media or wherever else. But, you know, I can't say this has happened every time, but if I'm just guessing, I would tell you a third of the time that people come in saying they're under investigation, they don't get charged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet, it, I, I bet ours is even maybe higher 50, than maybe that. Maybe 50%. It's, yeah. it's a lot easier to prevent an arrest than to win a case where a person's been charged. 100%. And so, you know, a lot of people take detective, well, I'm not sure I'm going to need a lawyer. Well, better to have one than not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and, and some of those cases that people never got charged were really serious cases, right? Or could have been. Or could have been. Yeah. Right. right. Good advice. That's great advice to stand with. <laughs> yeah.
right. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we'll do it again. We could talk to Nobles forever. He knows a lot about what we do.